I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about public confidence in the Supreme Court, upcoming arguments, and a database collecting all of the justices' private notes. So a few new polls have come out about the Supreme Court and how the public feels about the court. Gallup, as well as the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and also Marquette Law School in the last couple of weeks have all released new polls with some interesting findings. So apparently the American people like the Supreme Court and think that uh, it's doing a pretty good job. So the the Marquette study showed that 57% of, of the people surveyed picked the Supreme Court as the branch of government that they trust the most. Which uh, kind of tracks with what I would what, what I would expect. Um, Gallup found that 54% of people surveyed approve of the job of the Supreme Court, so just over a majority, which I think is higher than uh, than the president or Congress typically. They're they're in the 20s, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then the the Annenberg uh, Center said that 68% of people trust the Supreme Court to operate in the best interests of the American people, and 70% said that the court has the right amount of power. Now, it'll be interesting to see if these same institutions have polls at the end of this term, if the numbers will change, because, of course, this is a real blockbuster term with the court hearing cases on abortion, gay rights, guns, immigration, health care, religion, you name it, they've got it this term. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. But at least for right now, America seems pretty happy with the Supreme Court. But there is at least one person who's very upset that these polls express that. And that's Dahlia Lithwick. She has this new piece in Slate. No one knows how to get my blood boiling quite like her. <laughs> um, so it's entitled, Why I Haven't Gone Back to SCOTUS Since Kavanaugh. Some things are not worth getting over. So she spends this whole piece explaining that she hasn't been back to the Supreme Court since Kavanaugh's confirmation because she doesn't want to get over it. And she recounts a text she got from her son during confirmation that I'm going to. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it because you, you need to hear it. So she says, the enduring memory a year later is that my 15 year old son texted. He was watching it in school, meaning the hearing, to ask if I was perfectly safe in the Senate chamber He was afraid for the judge's mental health and my physical health. I had to patiently explain that I was in no physical danger of any kind, that there were dozens of people in the room, and that I was in the very back with a phalanx of reporters. My son's visceral fears don't matter in one sense, because the fact I was forced to explain to him that the man shouting about conspiracies and pledging revenge on his detractors would sit on the court for many decades. In that, in one sense, none of us, as women, were ever going to be perfectly safe again. That's really laying it on thick. I know. It's like, (laughs) come on. And she also complained that two of the three women justices spoke favorably about Kavanaugh this summer and that they support their new colleague going forward, including Justice Sotomayor, who Lithwick reported, told them to look to the future and turn the page. Heaven forbid that a body of nine people is able to move on and work collegially together. I know. And she she noted that she understood, you know, their reasons for doing it so they could, you know, pick off his vote every now and then. But that she refused to do the same because forgiveness is too much. But then once again, she lets us know what this is all really about when she says the justices will be like Kavanaugh will be deciding fundamental questions about women's liberty and autonomy. And... 
that's, you know, really the crux of it, as we've talked about before, um, also in regards to Justice Thomas. And it's just an atrocious article, and I can't believe it was written. Well, I guess if you want to get your blood boiling like Tiffany's, uh, check out that article on Slate. <laughs> but moving on, uh, the court granted cert in four cases since our last episode. So we'll quickly walk through those. And then we're going to talk about a couple of the arguments that are coming up next week. So first, the court granted cert in Lomax versus Ortiz Marquez. The issue is whether a dismissal without prejudice for failure to state a claim counts as a strike under the three strikes provision of the Prison Litigation Reform Act. So this provision, the three strikes provision, uh, prevents prisoners from repeatedly filing actions or appeals for free if they fail to state a claim upon which the court could grant relief. And most appeals court to date have taken the position that a dismissal without prejudice counts as a strike. I guess the Tenth Circuit, this is a case out of Colorado, so the Tenth Circuit had gone the other way. So I guess we'll see if uh, if the court is in error correction mode and is going to bring the Tenth Circuit into compliance with most other appeals courts. The second case that the court granted cert in is SELA Law versus the CFPB. And the question is whether the vesting of substantial executive authority in the CFPB, an independent agency led by a single director, violates the separation of powers. So this is a big case. Uh, when Congress set up the CFPB, it limited the president's authority to remove the director who serves a five-year term. Uh, so the president can only remove a director if there is inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. And the director has been given a great deal of authority, deciding what rules to issue, how to enforce the law, whether an individual or entity has violated the law, and what sanctions and penalties to impose. So, of course, the court has upheld other restrictions on the president's ability to remove agency heads. Famously, in the 1935 case, Humphrey's executor, the court upheld Congress's insulation of FTC commissioners uh, from removal except for cause. But in that opinion, many decades ago, the court stressed that the FTC did not exercise executive functions. It had multiple heads and operated more like a quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial body of experts which something in the executive branch maybe shouldn't be operating as a quasi-legislative or quasi-judicial, but that's an issue for another day. So turning from the constitutional issues to the practical issues, Canon Shanmigan represents the challenger here, and the United States, which is on the other side, uh, has decided not to defend the lower court ruling upholding the CFPB's structure. So the Supreme Court has appointed former Solicitor General Paul Clement to argue in favor of the judgment below. Uh, the court comes from the Ninth Circuit, and Justice Kagan is the circuit justice for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, she has previously not been shy about her admiration for Paul Clement. I believe she once said that he heats up the room <laughs> uh, when he's at the court. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say she probably had something to do with Paul Clement being tapped for this argument. And he's approaching 100 SCOTUS arguments this term. Perhaps this will be the 100th. Uh, but certainly a showdown between Cannon and Paul Clement is an oral argument you won't want to miss. So the grants I have to talk about are hard to pronounce because Elizabeth hates me. <laughs> so the first one is Nashrallah versus Barr. Um, and this could be a pretty important case dealing with how um, appeals courts can review certain immigration cases. The question here is whether the courts of appeals have jurisdiction to review factual findings underlying denials of withholding or deferral of removal relief. So under the Convention Against Torture and the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act, 
the U.S. can deport individuals to countries where they will be subjected to torture. This means that aliens uh, subject to deportation may request withholding of their removal or deferral of their removal if they show that they're likely to be tortured if deported. And those decisions are initially made by an immigration judge or an IJ and then typically reviewed by the BIA, the Board of Immigration Appeals. Then that decision can be appealed to a federal court of appeals. And I saw quite a lot of these cases clerking on the Fifth Circuit. It's a pretty tough standard of review in the Fifth Circuit and others, and that's why this case is going to SCOTUS. So the Fifth Circuit and seven other circuits have held that a portion of the Immigration and Nationality Act, or the INA, divest them of jurisdiction to review underlying factual findings. So Section 1252A2C of the INA says that, quote, notwithstanding any other provision of law, no courts shall have jurisdiction to review any final order of removal against any alien who is removable by reason of having committed a criminal offense that's covered under the statute. The challenger here is a Lebanese man who is convicted of a theft-related crime And he said that he will be tortured by Hezbollah if he's deported back to Lebanon and that the Lebanese government will acquiesce to his torture. Um, So along with the Fifth Circuit, the First, Second, Third, Fourth, Sixth, Eighth, and Eleventh have all taken the same view that they don't have jurisdiction to review the underlying facts. But the Seventh and Ninth Circuit have disagreed. So there's an eight to two split and the court decided to resolve it. Now, this could have a really profound impact on how most of these cases are reviewed all around the country if the court decides to um, go the way of the minority here. And then rounding things out, what's the fourth case? Oh, yes. Uh, Department of Homeland Security versus Thurasigam. I have no idea how to say that. And this is another immigration case. And the question here is whether, as applied to the respondent, Um, 8 U.S.C. Section 1252E2 is unconstitutional under the suspension clause. So this case involves a Sri Lankan man who was apprehended at the border right after crossing. Um, An immigration judge determined that he lacked a credible fear of persecution or torture, and he was subject to expedited removal proceedings. Um, Then he filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus to challenge the validity of his detention, But the federal district court dismissed it um, for lack of jurisdiction because it didn't raise the kind of habeas challenges that are permitted under federal law, um, which is the section I read earlier. Um, But the Ninth Circuit reversed holding that that statute violates the Constitution's suspension clause. Um, That clause is found in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2, and states that a writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Um, And so the U.S. lost, and they obviously appealed in this case. Um, But I checked the government's cert petition, and there was no mention of Abraham Lincoln suspending habeas corpus. (laughs) I was a little surprised about. Um, So I'll be very disappointed if there isn't at least one question at oral argument about Abraham Lincoln. I feel like Justice Gorsuch will probably serve that one up. Yeah, I, I do too. All right, turning to the upcoming arguments, on Monday, the court will hear Kansas versus Glover, and this will round out Kansas's very busy fall and its third appearance before the Supreme Court 
this term. So the issue in this case is for purposes of an, an investigative stop under the Fourth Amendment, whether it's reasonable for a police officer to suspect that the registered owner of a car is the one driving it absent any information to the contrary. So here's what happened. Uh, Mr. Glover was driving his car, uh, even though he had a suspended license, and a police officer pulled up behind him at a stop sign and then punched in uh, the license plate number into a database of um, unregistered or suspended licenses. So we don't know why the officer decided to do that. Maybe it was a slow day. I don't know, but he did. And then the officer learned that Glover had a suspended license and then pulled him over. So Kansas argues that this is fine under the Fourth Amendment because it's kind of like a checkpoint and the officer had a reasonable suspicion to stop the car uh, and it's reasonable to assume the driver is the registered owner. Mr. Glover has a different take. He argues that it isn't a reasonable assumption uh, that the driver is the registered owner and the officer needs something more to pull someone over. Um, he also points out that with increasing technology, such as license plate readers, um, the burden will will fall disproportionately on the poor uh, because a lot of license suspensions are um, are for failing to pay a fee or court cost or support order. Uh, and so Glover says there needs to be something else for the police to have um, reasonable suspicion to to pull someone over. Um, and the next case we have is Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. And the issue in this case is whether the Clean Water Act requires a permit when pollutants originate from a point source but are conveyed to navigable waters by a non-point source, such as groundwater. So I know there's quite a bit of technical language in these (laughs) cases that I don't really understand, so I'll do my best to put it into plain terms. Um, So essentially what it comes down to is the question of whether a party violates the Clean Water Act when it releases pollutants indirectly into navigable waters as opposed to directly. So the Clean Water Act requires a permit to discharge pollutants directly into navigable waters. And this is a point source point source pollution, I think. (laughs) Um, But indirect discharge or non point source pollution is not regulated uh, via permit, it's regulated by other means. Um, so in this case, the uh, county of Maui runs a water waste treatment plant. So they treat the water waste and then they put it into these underground wells that have been designed to hold it. Um, but some of that water gets um, into the groundwater and then eventually runs into the Pacific Ocean. And in some environmental groups um, sued, arguing that Maui needs a permit under the Clean Water Act to do this. And so the Ninth Circuit, of course, dramatically expanded the law and held that point source pollution includes pollutants that reach navigable waters by non-point sources if they can be traced to a point source. Um, So this, you know, really expands the reach of the Clean Water Act, and it could sweep in millions of new pollutant sources under the Clean Water Act. Um, So I think this is a pretty important case to watch. Um, But the burning question I have is whether our friend Albert Lynn, who recently moved my admission to the Virginia bar, um, (laughs) who represents the county of Maui, got to go to Hawaii and, you know, to really get a grasp on the facts on the ground here. And to check out the wells. Yes. Yeah. The the locations. Yeah. Very necessary preparation for a SCOTUS argument. Uh, Well, moving on, I recently spoke with a professor who has created a pretty cool new resource. 
Timothy Johnson is a professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota and creator of SCOTUS Notes, a database of notes written by the justices. Tim, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Hey, thanks for having me, Elizabeth. So just to start out, tell me about SCOTUS Notes. How did this project come about and what's your goal for it? Sure. So this project, which is actually co-done with a colleague of mine and actually one of my best friends at Michigan State University, Ryan Black, who is in their political science department, um, came out of the course of discussions, I will say, over more than a decade um, with both undergraduates as well as graduate students and then some of my colleagues around the country, where we, we figured out that, in fact, political scientists and legal scholars have studied almost every aspect of the Supreme Court's decision-making process, with one exception, and that is the court's conference. And it turns out the reason the, the conference has been ignored is really for lack of data. And the reason that there is lack of data is that in the Supreme Court's conferences, nobody is allowed in, in the chief's conference room when they discuss cases. The only folks who are there are the nine justices. There are no clerks, no secretaries, no marshals, no note-takers, just the nine. And they keep those proceedings really private, and, and it is very rare that you or I or any other court watcher would ever get any inkling of what went on in those meetings. And so it is one of those very clear black box parts of the process. But I kicked around the idea for a long time, as I said, with, with a whole host of folks um, about how we could study this. And it turns out that a group of former justices who have left their papers to archives around the country, mostly at the Library of Congress, in fact, ended up taking their own personal notes during conference about what they thought about the case and then about what they heard each of their colleagues say during the course of the discussion. And so Ryan, uh, Professor Black, and I decided that we would thought we could actually study the conference by gathering all these notes and aggregating them and, and get a sense of what the discussion was about and, and how the discussion proceeded in not only the highest profile of cases, think maybe Roe versus Wade or Bush versus Gore, um, but also in the more mundane cases that the court uh, would decide. And it turns out that a good number of the justices from Justice Lewis Powell to Justice William Brennan to Justice William Douglas to Justice Harry Blackman actually kept these notes. And so we decided to get those notes. And through a, a generous grant from the National Science Foundation, uh, we're funded to be able to get digital copies of all those notes so that we could begin the process of understanding what goes on within this black box. As for the ultimate goal, Elizabeth, it really is to understand how this first part of the justice's decision-making process and how that personal discussion they have with one another leads to the decisions they make. So really, the, the goals are twofold. One is to open up the court to the public, and the other is to actually answer some social scientific questions that we have about the way justices decide. So in your view, why do you think it's important that these documents are available and accessible to the general public? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we know for certain that the court of the three branches of government is the most closed off to the public. I have I sometimes use the word secretive, and there are others who don't like that word because they think <laughs> it sounds pejorative um, or not very nice uh, to the justices. But you and I, if, if we had the desire, and, and clearly with what's going on in this day and age, many of us do have the desire to turn on C-SPAN or CNN or Fox or MSNBC or Bloomberg TV, and we can see members of Congress 
doing interviews uh, on a regular basis. If we do turn on C-SPAN, we can watch the actual debates um, on the floor of the House, on the floor of the Senate, or in any number of conference uh, committee rooms that, that Congress has. The president only needs to himself um, say to the media that he would like to make a public statement and he will get free airwaves or free cable waves, if you would like to think about it that way. And so we can see the president and members of Congress on a regular basis. We simply can't see the work the court does. And, and the reason for that, that the justices have always uh, maintained, and I think they're probably correct, is that in order to be objective, they need to make sure that they can do their job without, the so, without social forces um, affecting their decisions. And so it is important that we can see the inner workings of the court. And, of course, we can't see those inner workings on a contemporary basis. We don't know what the Roberts Court is doing right now. But we can get a sense of how those nine in 2019 are acting by understanding how justices in the past acted as well. So you mentioned some of the former justices whose papers have have been released, you know, Justice Blackman uh, and some of the others. Now, are you finding that many of the former justices kept detailed papers and notes or was was Blackman really an outlier, at least in terms of volume? Sure. No, there's actually quite the variation. And so the I would say if you want to put in air quotes, the best justices papers, they are Justice Blackman. Uh, whose papers are at the Library of Congress, and Justice Brennan, whose papers are also at the Library of Congress, and Justice Lewis Powell, whose papers are at his alma mater, the the uh, Washington and Lee University. Um, those were the three who seemed to have kept the most. On the extreme other end um, is Justice Hugo Black, appointed uh, by FDR in the 1930s, who said on his deathbed to his family, you should just burn my papers. And he didn't mean it because he thought there was anything bad in the papers. He just didn't think that history would care about the papers. And then you've got folks like me who would be horrified by that because those (laughs) papers end up being really important. So Black actually has some papers, but many fewer than others because his family um, kept his wish to quite literally burn the vast majority of his papers. Um, Justice White has papers. Justice Douglas has papers. Justice Douglas actually has copious notes as well. The problem with Justice Douglas is his handwriting is so incredibly atrocious that even our transcribing process um, to get these papers readable for the public is darn near impossible. And so it is a a fair possibility that we will ultimately not transcribe Justice Douglas's papers, even though they exist and even though we have digital images, the vast majority of his conference notes beginning about 1942. And a lot of these collections are not just conference notes. There There are other things in there as well, right? Oh, that's right. And so the SCOTUS, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the SCOTUS Notes Project is specifically about the conference notes, but you are right, Elizabeth. We have used the papers of the justices for a variety of other projects, and and I suspect that we'll talk about some of those those projects as this discussion goes on. So now, Chief Justice William Rehnquist's papers are available now. When are they typically released? Is it a certain number of years after a justice has passed away? Or have there been any instances where a a living justice has had his papers released? So let me begin with former Chief Justice Rehnquist. His papers actually open immediately upon the death of a justice with whom he worked. And so, in fact, um, because of the death of uh, former Justice John Paul Stevens, Rehnquist's papers actually open up for uh, another number of years. That is from 1975 to 1981. The rules of those papers out at the Hoover Institute at Stanford 
just suggested that, that when a justice dies, that portion of the papers will open up. And so given that Justice O'Connor is still alive, anything mm. After night, beginning in 1981 and after 1981, are still not accessible to the public, and so he has very strict rules on that. The the commonality that he has with another chief justice is Chief Justice Berger, but he decided to do his papers or release his papers in a different way. His papers reside at the College of William and Mary, and he simply chose in his will or any the legal documents he used to to bequeath those papers to to William and Mary. Um, was the the specific rule that they could not be open until the year 2026 or seven years from now. And his assumption was that anybody with whom he worked on the bench um, when he left after the 1985 term, so in, in the spring of 1986, would probably be dead 40 years later. And in fact, this is probably very prescient because the last justice alive with whom Berger worked is former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And with her health concerns, I don't mean to be macabre, but it's probably likely that she will not be alive by 2026, and then his papers will open. The only justice we know whose papers opened when he was still alive was Thurgood Marshall, and he opened them immediately upon his retirement in 1981. And I will say this without it seeming, although it will seem hyperbolic, it really isn't hyperbole, to the horror of his colleagues. His colleagues were very worried that perhaps (laughs) Justice Marshall had things in his papers that would be embarrassing to his colleagues. It turned out he didn't. Um, unlike his very close friend, Justice William Brennan, uh, Justice Marshall simply didn't keep very good notes of many parts of the process. And so his notes, while they were interesting and it was fabulous that they were around while he was still alive, were not as usable as other of his former colleagues' papers. So now you mentioned the transcribing process, and I understand, is this a way people can get involved uh, with SCOTUS notes if they're interested? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have a website that is called SCOTUS Notes. It's all one word, scotusnotes.org. And if you go to that site, we have very uh, explicit uh, instructions on how you can transcribe the conference notes. It is incredibly easy to do. And if you are um, anywhere near a court geek like I am, and I suspect you may be a little bit as well, Elizabeth, <laughs> you can simply start reading the notes of the justices in cases um, and transcribe them for us. The notes come across randomly, so you can't just pick a specific case um, to transcribe. And we did that on purpose because we want all cases transcribed and not just the most salient ones that people care about. You can also click on an icon to get all sorts of metadata about cases, including links that will take you to the actual opinion in the case. And I will tell you that those links have been useful even for me, where there might be a specific word where I know the first three letters but can't transcribe the rest. And I've often gone to the court opinion online and typed in those three letters, and the word actually will pop up in the opinion. And then I'll say, oh, that's the word that I was trying to transcribe. So, yeah, you can go on um, and get involved. Um, we have had already in the, the two years that are that, almost two years that uh, we have been gathering the data through the transcription. I think over 3,500 volunteers have already transcribed for us. And so there's a good number of people and some who actually are uh, folks who transcribe for us around the world, probably on a daily basis. We can look and see who's online at any any given time. That's really cool. So what are some of the most interesting things that you've uncovered? Yeah. So in the conference notes, I will say that it, that, you know, we've had hypotheses about what the justices might talk about. And it's pretty clear that they are very um, absolutely interested in making sure that they, again, in air quotes, get the law right. 
but they are also very concerned about the context in which they decide. And so the justices clearly have conversations about what did Congress mean about a particular statute? How do you think Congress might react if we make a decision in this way and not that way? They discuss at length uh, the precedents that that would control in a case or whether or not there might be no precedents that control a given case. And so they really do delve deeply into um, the, the legal ins and outs and policy ins and outs of the case. Perhaps in terms of the conference notes, the most interesting aspect is that the justices simply don't take notes on everything every colleague says. And in fact, many of the pages um, the quadrants that include the justices' names, uh, so you know who is speaking or at a given time, um, are, are often blank. Or often they will say things like, just agrees with the chief justice or just agrees with Justice White. And so you'll know that the conversation moves very quickly in some cases because not every justice has had something to say. So I've read about some of the notes that have been uncovered that were passed during oral arguments, which I think are sure. kind of kind of entertaining ones. So there was one, Justice William O. Douglas passed a note to a colleague that said, we should not give this guy many points in his argument. But as far as his jacket is concerned, he comes out way above the average, yeah. <laughs> which I, <laughs> I enjoyed that. And then there was a, uh, there are plenty that show, um, you know, notes about uh, updates on current events. There's a famous note I've seen in, in a lot of articles from an argument that took place in 1973 while Game 5 of the National League Championship Series was happening. And the note says, VP Agnew just resigned, dot, dot. Mets two, Reds one, uh, Reds zero. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because when we uncovered all of these notes that they passed during oral argument, are a available on my uh, University of Minnesota website. Um, you just need to Google Timothy R. Johnson political science, and I'll be the first page that comes up. Um, and you can scroll down and find a link to the Blackman notes. That was a treasure trove that we found. Shortly after Blackman's papers opened in 2004, um, again, my colleague Ryan Black at Michigan State uh, and I were there in 2004. And just as a side note, Professor Black actually was an undergraduate student of mine at the time, and he was such a good student that we went out together. Um, and we found these folders where Blackman kept these notes. As you said early on in the conversation, he kept so much, such a large volume. Mm -hmm. um, and what I take from these notes that they passed to one another is not that you know, the justices weren't listening to the attorneys or that they were overly bored with a particular case, but just that the justices are simply human beings like you and me. And if there's one thing that I love to teach, not only my students at Minnesota, but any time I give a talk or am on a, a podcast like this or doing any sort of other media interview, I like to make it very clear that the justices are human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't think that oftentimes because they are considered the nine greatest legal minds in the nation at any given time. And while I believe that is absolutely positively true, they do act just like you and me. Um, we know that they cut the, many of them cut their own lawn and they go home and they cook dinner at night. Well, these <laughs> notes just indicate that just like you and I might be um, or might have been bored during a, a lecture of a professor when we were in university. This suggests that the justices' minds sometimes wander. And, and I'm always very careful to make sure that it doesn't seem as though by me making these notes public that I'm trying to denigrate the justices. I really am trying to humanize them, mm -hmm. um, or we are trying to humanize them, because that is really who they are. So one final question. Based on all of the papers and notes that you've read, which justice would you want to have a conversation with? 
That is, is an incredibly good question. And I, I've thought about that all morning since I saw that you might pose that question. Um, and I would say that I would actually not narrow it down to one, but I would probably narrow it down to two. Um, one would be um, Justice uh, William Brennan, um, because he was just so very careful and interesting about the notes that he took about his colleagues. And he was also the one justice uh, probably in the history of the court, with the exception of John Marshall uh, in the early 1800s, who really tried to make sure that he would compromise, not only with people who were close to him ideologically, but even compromise across the aisle, if that's the way you want to think about it. So to think about what was going through his mind, to be able to actually ask him that, I would love to do that. And then the other really would be Harry Blackman, um, just because he kept so many notes, he kept such track of what was going on at the court, with his colleagues, with the attorneys, and as well as keeping track of how the court related to the political, economic, and social context within which he and his colleagues were deciding. It would be great to get in his head um, and, and try to figure out why he thought the things he did when he was thinking them. Well, that's great. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. I, I was glad to be here, Elizabeth. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Halloween edition. And I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Before we get into this week's trivia, I have a correction from a listener on Twitter uh, called King Pizza. And he says, I enjoy listening to SCOTUS 101, uh, but while listening to the October 10th episode, there was a mistake in the trivia. The Pentagon Papers case was New York Times versus United States, not New York Times versus Sullivan. So, Which is true. And we... We went back and forth. About we had it. this discussion because yeah. I I had the right one written down, and then at the last minute, it's like, oh no, that's wrong. That doesn't that doesn't look right. Um, so <laughs> yes, thank you for the correction. Um, we love our engaged listeners. Okay, so on to Halloween trivia. All right, are you ready? Yes. First question: The children of clerks at the Supreme Court have uh, some years been invited to trick or treat at the court. Which justice was known for handing out candy? Is it on the current court or historically? I'm just going to say it's in recent history. Okay. Um, which probably means it's not someone currently on the court. I feel like maybe it was somebody unexpected like Rehnquist. No, it was Justice Scalia. Oh. And this is not to say that other justices have not participated in handing out candy, but this comes from uh, Yale's notice and comment blog. After Justice Scalia passed away, BYU law professor Aaron Nielsen wrote uh, you know, a, a sort of tribute article mm-hmm. about when he clerked at the court. I think he clerked for Justice Alito, but he said he remembers getting to bring his kids to trick-or-treat, and he had told his wife and his kids, like, don't expect any of the justices to be there. <laughs> but then they show up, and Justice Scalia was there handing out candy. It makes sense. He did have that great Halloween line about ghouls. That That is true. And also, he had something like 38 or 39 grandchildren oh, yeah. of his own. So um, a man who likes children. Okay, next question. What state Supreme Court is haunted by several ghosts? Oh. Interesting. Can you mean like a region of the country? If I do, it's going to give it away. Oh. Let's just say you should know it. Okay, the Michigan Supreme Court? No, the only other one, the Louisiana Supreme oh, Court. okay. It's a, located in the heart of New oh, Orleans. That makes sense. Yeah, there are ghost tours for basically every building. This. 
So uh, there are a few ghosts, apparently, at the Louisiana Supreme Court. There's the the ghost of a lawyer who, in the 1950s, shot himself in the building after losing Ooh. a case. There's uh, a woman who can be heard weeping right outside of the courthouse. And there are ghosts of witnesses who were apparently shot in the courtroom during a murder trial in the 1930s that involved the mafia. Wow. That's scary. Why is there not— Having a podcast about this. I there probably to should be. Ghost Hunters, Louisiana. And also, Judge Duncan never told us these stories. And well, now you can, I feel gypped. You can educate him. Okay. <laughs> okay, next question. In the previous Supreme Court term, what case involved a cemetery? A cem- involved a cemetery? Yes. Wait, the pre- like last term? Last term. A cemetery. Oh, is this the PLF case? Yes. About the government thought there were like rocks that were... The government thought that they were gravestones. Oh, yes. And Miss Rosemary Nick said that, no, those okay. are just rocks. I was going to say Nick. Nick versus, versus Township of Scott. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. So the property owner disputed that, that the presence of a cemetery on her, uh, on her land. Okay, fourth question. Why was the old Supreme Court considered cursed? The old Supreme Court? Like the one in the Capitol building? Mm-hmm. Um. I have no idea. Somebody die there? Yes. So uh, a clerk to the architect, Benjamin Latrobe, died while working on the old Supreme Court when an arch in the room collapsed and killed him. And legend has it that the clerk uh, cursed the building with his dying breath. <laughs> Yikes. Well, I'm glad they moved it. <laughs> yeah, for many reasons. Okay, fifth and final question. Which justice would decorate his or her chambers with scarecrows and pumpkins during Halloween, at least when this judge was on the appeals court. Hmm. I need some. Well, I was gonna say, I was gonna say O'Connor, but that that excludes her um, on the appeals court. I feel like this is something Justice Alito would do. <laughs> well, he did have the flamingos. Yeah, the flamingos. Yeah, uh, I don't know if Justice Alito had Halloween decorations. Perhaps he did, but. This comes from a New Yorker profile of Justice Sonia Sotomayor during her first year on the Supreme Court. Uh, This profile mentioned that her appellate chambers at the Second Circuit were a cheerful place to work. And in addition to decorating for the holidays, including Halloween, she also organized a screening of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So it sounds like Justice Sotomayor and I have at least one thing in common. We enjoy Harry Potter movies. That's great. Well, Tiffany, I think you did— a pretty good job. These were these were tricky. They were. So, they were um, tough. Yeah, I think you did a pretty good job. Uh, before we wrap things up, I want to mention that we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. You can get them at shop.heritage.org, and we're offering 30% off and free shipping if you enter discount code 4BANANAS. That's all one word, the number 4, and bananas <laughs> at checkout to get your discount. It still cracks me up. (laughs) Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101. Brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.